Well, welcome back to our study of First Thessalonians. If you're just joining us, we're walking through the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, uh, being one of the very first books of the New Testament written. Today, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And the title of this sermon is Authentic Ministry. But before we jump into this specific text, I want us to start with another text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does that have to do with 1 Thessalonians? Great question. Paul, what Paul teaches here in Ephesians is this, that every member of the body is a minister. Every member of the body is a minister. You might not all be pastors officially, but every member of the body is a minister. Each of you are gifted and equipped in different ways to minister to the body and to minister to the world. Every member is a minister. What we're going to see in today's text in Thessalonians is a portrait of what authentic ministry looks like. And I don't want you to just check out this morning thinking, man, this is a great exhortation to pastors, but I'm not a pastor. Fair enough, but please don't tune this out. Every member is a minister. You might not be a pastor or an elder of a church, but you are, if you're a Christian, called to minister. Paul's model of ministry here is a model for you. Paul, as we'll soon see, is imitating Christ, and we are called to imitate them both as we seek to minister to others. So when you're seeking to minister to your neighbor or to others sitting around you in this church, Paul's model here is pure gold. Second, as a church member, this is what you should look for in pastors. It's what you should expect of us as pastors. Should you ever move or go to another church, it's what you should look for there. And here, not a charismatic personality, not flashiness, but faithfulness. Third, there may be some of you out there who God is or God will in the future call into pastoral ministry. 
If we've learned anything over the last several years, it's that celebrity pastors aren't always the great, greatest model for us. Instead of modeling your ministry based on what you see on Twitter, try the book of Thessalonians instead. So, with all of that in mind, this text is for you, Christian. So let's dive in. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, it's important for us to remember exactly what happened here that led to the writing of this letter. Remember, Paul, Timothy, and Silas brought the gospel to this city that led to the writing of this letter. They were changed dramatically. The Thessalonians' allegiances shifted from Caesar being Lord and worshiping a number of pagan deities to Jesus alone being Lord. Well, this didn't square well with the culture around them, did it? It actually threatened the peace in many ways. All of this is in Acts chapter 17, by the way, if you want to dig more into that. And this gospel coming and changing these people actually led to a riot and a number of new Christians being thrown in jail. To get out of jail, they posted bail, and then they got Paul, Silas, and Timothy and his missionary band out of town under the cover of night. Now, while they were away, it appears that some enemies of the gospel continued to make trouble there, specifically by targeting Paul, Silas, and Timothy's character. In trying to undercut the message, they went after the messenger. It's a common tactic, specifically in politics, right? If you can't address a specific issue or fact, what do you do? You sling mud at someone's character. 
It's despicable and underhanded, but that's what's going on here in Thessalonica. Further, it's important for us to know about the culture of traveling philosophers that was present there. The ESV expository commentary notes this. They write, first century Roman cities were full of traveling philosophers, magicians, and religious enthusiasts who gained their livelihood from public teaching. Ancient literature often associates such teachers with greed and immorality. They amassed wealth and notoriety through fine-sounding rhetoric. Some, and this is key, some happily argued both sides of a debate, indifferent to the truth of the matter. Their teaching could shift according to the audience's desires. Often, they behaved reprehensibly toward others, mocking their opponents, winning over the weak-willed, engaging in sexual relations with followers, and sponging off the rich. Now, what seems to be happening is this. The enemies of the gospel have come in, and they've tried to tell this small church in Thessalonica that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are exactly like these traveling philosophers, and that they shouldn't be trusted. Let's look at the text. We can almost reconstruct these accusations. Accusation number one, Paul's teaching was pointless. How did he answer? Verse one, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying our teaching and preaching wasn't pointless. Like so many of the traveling philosophers, it wasn't in vain. How does he know that? Chapter 1, right? Paul saw the fruit of changed lives. He saw that their lives were impacting an entire region. He saw that they had the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of much affliction. Messages from traveling philosophers simply don't do that. Accusation 2. Cowardice. Cowardice. Paul... Silas and Timothy, they left in the middle of the night. They must be cowards, right? Answer, verse 2. Paul writes, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, if you're a traveling philosopher, and you really don't buy what you're selling, and you get beaten and jailed in one city, do you then proceed to go to another city where you know the outcome's going to be the same? If you're a coward, you don't do that. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy did. After Philippi, being beaten and thrown in jail, they proceed to go to Thessalonica with boldness. We'll come back to this in a second. Accusation three. These guys are obviously false, immoral, and deceptive, trying to, to come after your money. Answer, verses three through six. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God 
to be entrusted with the gospel? So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying, no, we, we spoke the truth to you even when it cost us something, even in the midst of conflict. There was no deceitfulness or manipulation there. What we're seeing is Paul's defense without being defensive. And so I'll ask the question, why does Paul feel the need to defend himself? Well, because he realizes that the veracity of the gospel itself is being called into question. Paul doesn't necessarily care what they think about him. He cares infinitely about what they believe about the gospel. And this is why our character as Christians matters. You can inadvertently undercut the gospel by how you live. Paul knew this. And so he sought to defend his ministry. And in so doing, he gives us all a portrait of what faithful gospel ministry looks like. So, what's the character of faithful gospel ministry? What's authentic ministry? Let's look back again at verse 2. Paul writes, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So first, faithful gospel ministry is characterized by boldness. Characterized by boldness. But notice where that boldness is placed. Not in the self, but in God. Most of us don't share the gospel because we're afraid of personal hardship. We fear being embarrassed or making things awkward in a friendship or even being made fun of or persecuted for our faith. We won't share the gospel unless the situation is exactly right and we know the outcome is actually already in our favor. Not so for Paul. They had already been persecuted and they knew what was ahead and yet they went for it anyway. Why? Well, because they had boldness in God. Don't forget, this is the God who created the universe. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who raised his son Jesus from the dead. That's where our boldness in sharing the good news comes from. Not ourselves and not the perfect situation but from our God. Now understand that courage isn't just a lack of fear. It's being afraid and doing it anyway. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt said it this way. He said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. For us as Christians, that something more important is God's glory. 
So where's your boldness rooted as you seek to declare the gospel of God? Second, faithful gospel ministry is characterized by faithfulness with the entrusted gospel. Faithfulness with the entrusted gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Do you see those words? Approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. Approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now, in a specific sense, Paul is a capital A apostle. He's uniquely been approved by God and sent with authority to proclaim Jesus. He's uniquely been entrusted with the truth. But in a broader way, why can Paul say that he's been approved by God? Well, Paul's approved by God, first and foremost, because he's in Christ. God approves of his son, Jesus. And when you're in Christ, when you have union with him, you, Christian, are approved by God. Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth. He was righteous in every way. He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. He was buried and rose from the grave three days later. When you turn from sin and you trust in Christ, you get Christ's righteousness placed on you. You get union with Christ as your new identity. So, if you're a Christian, you are approved by God because of Christ. Approved by God. But what about this word entrusted? Entrusted with the gospel. Think about when someone dies and they leave a trust. Well, when that happens, you can't just go and do whatever you want with that money. You don't have the authority to. You can only do the will of the person who left it. Well, the same is true for Paul as an apostle. He only delivered that which was given to him. He didn't have the authority to edit the message only the authority to deliver that message faithfully. And here's the thing. The same is true for each of us as Christians. You and I as Christians haven't been given the authority to edit God's mail. We're called as mailmen and mailwomen, not as editors. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And faithful gospel ministry is characterized by faithfulness with that entrusted gospel. This means that as you're sharing the, the truth of God's word, it's not your, your job to shift with the culture or to change the truth depending on which audience you're speaking to. Look at what Paul says to his disciple Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. He says, O Timothy... Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. He's saying, if you're teaching God's word in any way, 
from a pulpit or in a park or in your living room. Carefully guard it. Don't let it be compromised. Take God's word seriously. Don't bend it, subtract from it, or add to it. Christian, be bold and be faithfully entrusted. Third, faithful gospel ministry seeks God's pleasure as the primary motive. Seeks God's pleasure as the primary motive. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you see that? Why can Paul and Silas and Timothy and you this morning, why can you faithfully speak the gospel, even if it means conflict? Because your ultimate audience is God. Your aim is to please him more than man. One commentator says it this way. He says, ultimately what matters most is not what others think about you, but what God knows about you. Again, it's so easy for us to shy away from conflict because we fear man. There's a guy named Ed Welch, and he has a phenomenal book on this titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small. That's effectively what we're talking about here. If we care more about what people think than what God says, we'll be often tempted to avoid speaking hard truths in that moment that we know aren't going to land well. It's a lot easier to say what people want us to say simply to avoid conflict. I know I'm a broken record on this one, but hear this loud and clear. This isn't a license to go be a jerk. If you're actually living out the Christian life, sharing the gospel, teaching God's truths, you don't have to be a jerk to experience conflict. You're going to experience some blowback. The question is, are you willing to do it anyway? Will you seek glory from man above God's pleasure? God knows our hearts. He knows our motivation for everything. And he's delighted when we faithfully deliver his entrusted message. So, faithful gospel ministry seeks God's pleasure as its primary motive. Fourth, I love this one. Faithful gospel ministry is gentle and self-giving. Gentle and self-giving. Look at verse 7. This is awesome. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When you think of Paul, what do you think of? Let me slightly rephrase that. When you think of a strong leader, what do you think of? My guess is that most of us wouldn't first blurt out, like a nursing mother. <laughs> but that's what Paul says. 
And to be clear, he's saying this in defense of their ministry. He's saying this is a good and desirable thing for a faithful minister. I want us to consider this morning the tenderness of a nursing mother. A nursing mother is as close as you can get to the child she's feeding. There's a nearness there. A nursing mother doesn't nurse from a distance. There's this picture of gentle, nurturing, provision. And this isn't just any mother or any woman that Paul's talking about. Paul specifically says gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Having lived through this four times with each of our kids watching Shannon, I'll tell you, nursing children are demanding. And nursing mothers sacrifice a lot. They never get too far from the child. And it's pretty constant. They feed like eight times a day. A nursing mother loses sleep and sacrifices her own schedule to care for and to feed this child. Do you see the picture that Paul's painting? This is the model for us. A gentle nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, if you're a parent, you know. You may love all kids but you have a special love and concern for your own kids. Paul's saying, a faithful minister is willing to sacrifice gently to take care of others as if they were their own children. This isn't a portrait of someone who just dumps information and gets out of there, is it? It isn't a portrait of a guy on a bullhorn just telling people they're going to hell or of a pastor who just preaches and nothing else. It's a portrait of involvement, of nearness, of closeness, of provision. Paul makes sure that that we see this when he adds this in verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Is this how you think of your church? Is church an event that you attend and give a couple of hours each week to? Or do you have affection for your brothers and sisters? Look at this. Paul Paul loves these people so much that he not only shares the gospel with them, but he shared his own self. That can also be translated soul. So do you share your own self or soul with others because you're affectionately desirous of them? Do you love the people of this church like your own children? That's a nursing mother right there. That's what she does. That's what Paul's calling us to. That's like Jesus, who's gentle and lowly of heart. It's not about what we can get, but what we can give. 
So faithful gospel ministry is gentle like a nursing mother. Fifth, faithful gospel ministry involves hard work. Hard work. Look at verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul knew that these, these were new converts in the midst of a pagan place. He knew that the typical traveling philosopher was known for greed and taking advantage of people financially. As an apostle, he could have made demands on them. And he isn't against ministers being paid. But in this case, he chose to support himself in two ways. From gifts from other churches, like Philippi, and through tent making, or working another job. The point is this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy... They worked their tails off. There wasn't room for laziness. Paul's going to actually address this with the Thessalonians later in this letter. So faithful gospel ministry is characterized by hard work. When you're ministering to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, people in this church, it takes toil. It takes sweat. We've got to be willing to do that. Sixth. Faithful gospel ministry is shaped by godly character. Shaped by godly character. Verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Do you see that? Holy, righteous, and blameless conduct. This is what you're looking for in a minister. This is what you're called to be as a minister. Remember Ephesians 4. Holy, set apart, committed to God in all of life, devoted to God consistently. Righteous, honesty, integrity, free from any injustice toward others. Blameless, not sinless, but above reproach. You can't charge them with wrongdoing. If you're trying to minister to someone, your character, Christian, matters. Faithful gospel ministry is shaped by godly character. Seventh and finally, faithful gospel ministry is fatherly. Fatherly. First, Paul told us that they were like gentle nursing mothers. But look at this, verses 11 and 12. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So not only is a faithful minister gentle and near, they're fatherly, and in two specific ways. Number one, A father exhorts. A father exhorts. This word exhort means to call or summon or entreat. A father challenges and calls their children to specific virtues and goals. 
They patiently instruct and sometimes correct. One commentator notes that the father image retains the idea of a deep and tender interest, but adds the thought of strong example and firm demand. That's right. A father exhorts. Then, second, a father encourages. Fatherly ministry isn't just all instruction and correction. We've got to be encouraging, too. Again, to be encouraging actually entails knowing someone. It's hard to encourage if you don't know what's going on in their life. A pastor friend of mine once said that 80% of what, what needs to be done in someone's life can be done through encouragement. I'll say that again. 80% of what needs to be done in someone's life can be done through encouragement. I think that's probably right. So here's the question. How can you encourage someone this week? Give that some serious thought and prayer. Then go do it. Be encouraging. So, faithful gospel ministry is bold. It's faithful with the entrusted gospel. It seeks God's pleasure as the highest motive. It's gentle like a nursing mother. It shares the gospel and itself. It's hard work. It's full of godly character. And it's fatherly. That's what we're called to. That's authentic ministry. That's a lot, isn't it? It's tempting to hear that and to ask the question, is it worth it? But I want to let the text encourage us to a better question than that. Look again at verse 12. He says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the question for us this morning isn't, is it worth it? It's, is he worthy? Why would we seek to imitate Paul, who's imitating Christ here at great cost to ourselves? Why would any of us do that? Well, because he's worthy. Paul's calling us to a way of life that's worthy of God, who's worthy of everything we have. It's about his kingdom and his glory. When we live a life that knows who our king is and that his glory is what we're after, everything else fades away in comparison. Boldness, sacrifice, selflessness, hard work for the glory of God. Is he worthy? He is. Let's pray.